0: 1st and 2nd Corinthians is a little difficult in terms of really understanding what is going on in Corinth. Um, we we know that Paul received some letters from the house of Chloe and that he's working through those letters and trying to respond. We know that there are extreme problems in Corinth, a lot of dissension, a lot of factionalism. In other words, they're divided into small groups. Some say they're of Apollos, some say they're of Paul, some say they're of Christ. And and Paul's having to address that. There's immorality in the church not being addressed. Uh, a man is living with his mother uh, or something like that. So...
1: Well, then they have that religion going on.
0: Yeah, and there's, there's in the a temple. The, and the, uh, there the is... The
1: pre- priests uh, that sleep with people and, and the right. priestesses, yeah.
0: So, they have all of these things to deal with, but what is problematic for First and Second Corinthians is the order in which we read this. And in the 1940s, J. Edgar Goodspeed, who was a professor of New Testament at, at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago... And I've heard his name before, yeah. Co- ...proposed a different reordering of the text there's apparently a letter missing because there there's, seems to be allusions to things that we don't have in these letters. Uh, so what Goodspeed proposed, and if I have my memory, I'm basing this on memory, I haven't been able to find the time to fully research this, uh, but based on my memory of a teacher I had in graduate school, the, there's a piece of that first letter Possibly in chapter 6, 1 Corinthians. Oh, Second Corinthians, sorry. Second Corinthians chapter 6. And that's because it changes everything. Uh, and in other words, if you were to read... The, okay, let me first say the letter, the, the snatch of letter is chapter 6, verses 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and then chapter 7, verse 1. And... It has how, uh, I'm going to read starting with verse 11 of chapter 6 so that you can see how it breaks up the th- flow of thought. Okay. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is open wide to you. There are no restrictions in our affections, uh, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children, open wide your hearts also. Now, if you jump over the next five or six verses... Then you could start with verse two of chapter seven. Make room in our heart, in your hearts, for us. It it completely transitions over. But if you don't read that next, here's what you have: Do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Mm-hmm. Or, or what fellowship is there between light and darkness? But agreement. What agreement does Christ have with Beliar? And what does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, of body and of spirit, making holiness perfect in the fear of God. Now we come to make room in our heart, in your hearts, for us. And at a, at a casual reading, it doesn't seem to interrupt anything. Mm-hmm. But when you when you look at First Corinthians, eleven to thirteen, and then at seven two, it's like, wait a minute, that is such a seamless
1: mm-hmm.
0: unit. So. Six. Uh, I have here the Oxford Annotated Bible, and here's what it says. 614-7-1, a parenthesis on relations with unbelievers. This passage represents an abrupt change of subject, an interruption since 7.2, that's verse 7-2, uh, ch- uh, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 2, seems to follow directly upon 613. It has been suggested that a fragment of some other letter to Corinth, possibly that mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, hold your place there, and go to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. Oh, chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral persons, not at all Meaning, the immoral, the world, or the greedy, or robbers of idolaters, since you would then need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who is sexually immoral or greedy, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. So he's referring to, I wrote to you. Hmm. This is before 1 Corinthians. All right. So, Goodspeed's <laughs> belief was that uh, this fragment that we have that's so out of place, and that does counsel them not to associate with idolaters and not to touch the unclean is part, Uh-oh. not a whole, but part of that first letter. Hmm. Then, if I can remember how this goes, I, I had forgotten a piece of it till now. So I'm doing this kind of off the cuff. Right, right. Uh, then, if you go to 1 Corinthians, the next letter would be 1 Corinthians, where he has where it says, uh, verse 11 of chapter 1, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. So Paul is wrestling with this correspondence from the house of Chloe. Hmm. So he writes First Corinthians. So that's letter number 2. Then he gets word that they say, Your letters are are weak, you know, no, your bodily presence is weak, but your letters are weighty and strong, mm-hmm. and they're they're basically dissing him, you know, just not giving him any any uh, respect. Right. Uh, so then he writes his stern letter, which is letter number three. So we have this little fragment of letter one, First Corinthians, letter two, and then we have a stern letter, which is letter three, which is. P- half about r- roughly half of second corinthians hmm. and it it um com- starts probably with 611
1: i think that's the third letter then
0: we have spoken frankly to you corinthians our hearts are wide open to you there's no restriction on our affections but only in yours in return i speak as to children uh, open wide your hearts also Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. Before I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I often boast about you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with consolation. I am overjoyed in your affliction. Uh, Oh, wait a minute. That's part of the... I'm sorry. That is part of the third letter. No, second letter. No, fourth letter. Fourth letter. So here's how it works. So you have the fragment in chapter 6. You have the first Corinthians. And then you have the stern letter, which um, begins somewhere near the end. Okay. Chapter 10.
1: Oh, in chapter 10. In Second Corinthians.
0: Second Corinthians. This is his stern letter. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the weakness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble... When face to face with you, but bold to you when I am away. I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think they are acting according to human standards. Indeed, we live as human beings, but we do not wage war according to human standards. And so on. And he goes down, chapter 11... I'm just kind of picking little pieces so you can see how, how stern it is. Right. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. I feel divine jealousy for you, for I promised you in marriage to one husband to present you as a chaste virgin, virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as a servant deceived Eve by its coming, cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion for Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you submit to it readily enough. I think that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. I may be untrained in speech, but not in knowledge. Certainly in every way and in all things we have made this evident to you. Did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I proclaimed God's good news to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was indeed, I did not burden anyone, for my needs were supplied by friends who came from Macedonia. And he goes, in verse 16, I repeat, let no one think that I am a fool. But if you do, then accept me as a fool, so that I may boast a little bit. And he starts boasting for several verses. Hmm. He starts telling how persecuted he was, how much trial? How many trials he's he's uh, endured, and then he goes on to visions, and then he talks about a messenger from Satan who tormented him, uh, and then verse eleven in chapter twelve. So twelve, verse eleven. I have been a fool. You forced me to it. Indeed, you should have been the ones commending me, for I am not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. He's really laying it on, hmm. and. Um, here I am, verse 14. Here I am ready to come to you at this third time, and I will not be a burden because I do not want what is yours but you, for children ought not to lay up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Let it be assumed that I did not burden you. Nevertheless, you say, since I was crafty, mm. I took you in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves with the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? And he goes on. Mm.
1: Um, you must have really trusted Titus, by the way.
0: Yes. So he sends this third letter, and then he's in agony. So go back to first uh, to Second Corinthians, verse chapter one, and and I'm going to pick verses all the way through. Uh, he talks about the sufferings of Christ are abundant for us. Our hope for you, verse 7, is unshakable, shaken, for we know that we, in you that as you share in our sufferings, so, she, so, so, so you also share in our consolation. Hmm. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we suffered in Asia, for we were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And so he goes on about his sufferings. And he, he's still defending himself. You can hear a little bit of a defensive attitude. Was I fascinating when I wanted to do this? Verse 17. Do I make my plans according to ordinary human standards, ready to say yes no, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in everything, it is always yes. And he and goes on. So, I, verse 23, But I call on God as witness against me, as witness against me it was to spare you that I did not come again to Corinth. So he avoided coming. And what he did, according to this letter, is he sent Titus. Since they liked Titus, they didn't like Paul. Mm. He sent Titus. So, v- chapter 2, verse 1. So I made up my mind not to make you another painful vision visit. For if I cause you pain... Who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who have made me rejoice. For I am confident about all of you, that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote out of much anguish, of, much distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. So he's referring here to his stern letter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He apparently sent it by Titus. And apparently they repented, because he goes on to to reassure them that he forgave them, and if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but to some extent, not to exaggerate. To all of you, this punishment by the majority is enough for such a person. So now, instead, you should forgive and console him. This may be an allusion to the man who was who was living with his mother's wife or his or, or some some woman that was illegitimate. Hmm. So now instead you should forgive and console him so that he may not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. I wrote for this reason to test you and to know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. What I have forgiven, I have for- if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. And we do this so that we may not be outwitted by Satan if we are ignorant of this de- of his designs. Um, And then he tells this little story. When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord, but my mind could not rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Hmm. Titus was supposed to meet him there, and he's not there. Hmm. So I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us to triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrant, fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one a fragrance from death to death, the other fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, uh, as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He's a little still worried they're going to take this well. You, your, uh, Surely we do not need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. Do we? You yourselves are a letter written in our hearts to be known and read by all. And you I show right that, you, back into yeah, that you are a letter of Christ prepared for us, written not by ink but with spirit of the living God, not with tablets of stone but tablets of human hearts. And now he goes on to a much... A more positive tone. Mm-hmm. So it's just a brief little uh, re- uh, allusion to that previous letter. In mm. other words, uh, so that's, I think, the story that to be reconstructed that Paul wrote a, a generic letter that he could have written to any church mm. to them first. He gets co- a correspondence back from the house of Chloe complaining of problems. Right. So in 1 Corinthians, he deals with those problems. That's letter two. He finds out that they don't respect him. His bodily presence is weak, but his letters are weighty and strong. And they basically disrespect what he's trying to tell them. And they don't repent. Mm. So he writes a stern letter. That's the last part of Second Corinthians two. I mean, Second Corinthians, the last part. Uh, he writes his stern letter. That's letter three, and then. He can't rest. He goes to Troas hoping to meet Titus there. Titus isn't there. He moves on to Macedonia. Finally, Titus comes with this good news that they've repented. And he writes this final letter, which is the first part of Mm -hmm. 2 Corinthians.
1: And what is attributed to why things were mixed up? You know, these
0: letters were probably sent to all the churches. And they got pretty tattered. Papyrus doesn't last long. Right now, it's possible they wrote them even on vellum or some some other material that lasts longer. But over the over this over time, as they're passed from place to place, they get pretty tattered. And so, it's presumable that some of the letters that one letter got broken up and the pieces got separated and they got lost. And so you have this fragment. And then that the editors or later collators decided to combine two letters into one. Mm. Because they weren't sure but what they were originally one letter. Okay.
1: And who is supposed to have written the Corinthians? Paul. So he probably wrote it from the island when he was towards the end of his life.
0: He wasn't on an island. I think you're meaning John. Oh, I was thinking of John, yeah, that's right. Paul probably wrote, uh, let's see, what I've just told you is actually in this uh, introduction to Second Corinthians. For anyone listening, if you want to see in, pr- in print what I've said, uh, get the Oxford Annotated, the New Oxford Annotated Bible. And look up Second Corinthians, the introduction, mm. and also Second Corinthians six, fourteen, and the note mm. at the bottom in the same book.
1: I guess I was thinking if he wrote the Corinthians. I'm not re- sure he rewrote his letters and sort of you know this out. is
0: later in his life because he's established all these churches so, or is right. is in the process of finishing up that work. So I would guess it's it's during his trips to Asia and that he's still working in Asia Minor.
1: So it wasn't like he has a manuscript he just wrote the whole two books of Corinthians.
0: He didn't write them in one sitting. He wrote them in pieces. Pieces and parts. So then when they try to put it together, some of those pieces
1: and parts are, are yeah. not together. But so, in looking at that, it makes more sense to put it together the way they're suggesting the Oxford bin. Yeah,
0: this, this is the to me the best storyline you could mm-hmm. give it. It makes sense of all the pieces,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and it helps me not to read it, when you read it in sequence the way it is. It leaves you with this ah, unfinished feeling and, and like you've been slapped in the face mm-hmm. uh, because a Paul Stern letter is the end. All right. Whereas if you read it this other way, it it becomes much more sensible.
1: It builds up what the difficulties, what was going on Mm in Corinth, which was a big trade center, too, religion and trade center. Right. I wonder why they were having so much problems. It must have been influence from other nations, people doing trade there and the ships coming in and stuff.
0: It's hard to know, but some churches are like that, you know. Yeah. (laughs)
1: And traders, you know, they—they're looking for the gold. They're not. You know.
0: Well, I imagine there was a kind of self-reliance, self-pride—a lot of pride mm-hmm. there—and that always leads to other problems. So that didn't take us as long as I expected. Uh-huh. So on your sheet. You're right. What is the first passage we have to read? Uh, First
1: Corinthians one, eighteen through twenty-five. Does the cross make sense to the world? Why not? To whom in the world does it not make sense?
0: Yeah. Why? Why is the message about the cross foolishness to those who are perishing? Well, I
1: think part of it is because humans, we want to, some way, be involved and make decisions about what happens to us. And we're actually trained to learn how to make decisions and, and be in control of stuff and plan ahead. And
0: is, it, is it possible that, our, I think of our society now, a woman gets raped, she's told that she was wearing something provocative. Right. A person uh, falls into a scam, they're told they're weak and that they need to protect themselves. We always tend to blame the victims mm. we don't like being victims right. in fact vic- the word victim has become very pejorative mm. it's no longer a, a pity a pitying word it's a scornful
1: word when well, there's some sociological psychological thinking that nobody's really a victim right so we try to do away with the concept of a victim right in some way you bring it on yourself
0: right. So the idea of God submitting to abuse and not fighting back is utter folly to the world. Hmm. The idea of us needing the salvation of a death of someone does not make sense to the world.
1: Yeah, I think the concept of having a pure life and in some way by dying it enables you to take all our sins and raise again, and then we can be set on a different path
0: mm-hmm. for
1: salvation. I think, in a way, doesn't make sense. Like, why would he have to die to take on our sins to, you know, to have us Actually, a? Actually, he has to
0: take to... on our sins in order to die, isn't it? you
1: right. Yeah, I just yeah, take on our sins to die, and then it puts us on a different path because then he says, "Okay, now I can forgive you, and you can be on a different path." So I can see why that would be really confusing. Why didn't he just take on our sins and, and say, now I can forgive you. I've had a pure life. Like that some way why does enables he have me to, to take die? on your sins.
0: Because, so why because should I have to die? I can just say, all right, now. But, but here's the thing, Ed. If he did that, we would never know that sin causes death. Okay. So the cross is a revelation that sin leads to death. That's that. If you if you read Pentecost and Prophets and her take on the sacrificial system, she said that she talks about Adam having to kill that first animal, and says that it was to show that it is sin that leads to death.
1: Right, and. Yeah, that I can understand, but it's, if you haven't had patriarchs or prophets or that kind of right. understanding, it's like...
0: Well, people, what it feels like to me, anyway, this is this is my human response. It feels like there's just pieces of the picture missing. I, I, there's so, so many whys. I could, Why does he need to take our sins? Why does he need to die? Why, you know, there's mm-hmm. there's all these things that aren't being answered and aren't being addressed. Right. Uh, and that's what led me in college to really start raising the question, why did Jesus have to die? Mm -hmm. And I began searching for that answer, and the only answer that made sense to me was that when the serpent said to Eve, in the day you eat, you you will not surely die. Uh, That left open the idea that God had lied or that he didn't know what he was talking about and that sin doesn't lead to death. Sin won't hurt you.
1: And at that time, there hadn't been any death. Right. As I understand it, in, in the, the other worlds, in heaven, or uh, Satan, nobody died. They were kicked out of heaven, but they didn't die. The whole concept of death must have been...
0: It was foreign, totally foreign. I mean, think back to when you were... The first time in your life you witnessed death or, or was aware of death. Did you understand it? No, it's just it's it's as it's as mysterious as a bee stinging you, and and you don't see it anywhere. All right. All right. Hmm. I, I remember how unsettling it was. Uh, my my father lost his best friend. He lived across the street from us. He played piano, organ duets with my dad,
1: hmm.
0: and he died of a heart attack at two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And we were out in rural Oregon at a rural Adventist Academy and calling the ambulance did no good. I mean, we were 20 minutes away by regular driving from the nearest town that had a community hospital. And uh, most people didn't know CPR. I don't I remember that the concept was there in 1962. (laughs) But um, he died. Mm -hmm. And my dad was devastated and I was just like, wait a minute, last mm-hmm. Sabbath Uncle Wally was sitting on the front row of Vespers mm-hmm. while we children sang to everybody and he was looking at us and smiling at us and affirming us and, and he's gone?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How can that be? And uh, I began to worry about mom and dad. Maybe they were here today but they'd be gone tomorrow. So, death is a hard concept, and you think about imperfection. Death is the farthest thing from the thought. Yeah. So, God had, I believe that God had Adam kill that first lamb T- to illustrate to him this is what sin does. This is, you're the sinner, you're laying that lamb out, and it's because of your sin mm. that he is dying. And that's the way it's going to be when Jesus comes he's going to bear our sins that knife of sin is going to take his life Hmm.
1: yeah because i think the whole concept for people some people you know we can accept death more than what happens in reality but uh, we can't get away from it i may not want it but to really understand why we have to die what's the point of that it's not enough to say, well, because you are sin, then you have to die. You have to understand what's the foundation of that, what's the roots of that. I remember the first death, I remember, was a, my brother and I in the winter, we were young, grade school, and uh, found a dog in a cardboard box, opened this up, and there was a frozen dog in there. Mm. That's the first death, I remember. But the first human death... Mom and grandmother had what's now called nursing homes, and we had patients there. And some of them had last stages of syphilis and everything. But I would be, this is a huge house in Spokane, and uh, I'd go in the rooms and talk to people and stuff. But but, uh, people would, I'd go in the morning, they'd be dead. But my memory is not so much fear. I didn't understand it, but I didn't have a, total negative sort of sense because the way grandmother and mom dealt with death and, and that sort of thing they pre- mm-hmm. prepared about it. I could hear conversations about somebody sick and they probably won't be here much longer. So it sort of tempered this sort of reality of mm-hmm. that death. I knew they were gone but it wasn't like any other concept really. But I think also humans do want to take charge that they want to not be a victim. They don't want to uh, give in. They don't want they want to be part of whatever happens to their future. Mm-hmm. Like salvation or anything else. They want to be part of that. And we have an over overriding sense that we have more control of everything around us, humans, people. But
0: when it comes to life, real salvation, we don't have We anything. don't have that control. Right. right. And You're right. That's the human pride issue. Mm. And and the tendency Mm. that we trust ourselves more than we trust God. Right. How can we trust someone we don't see with something so important as eternal life and not trust ourselves? But the people who can understand this the best are the people who are broken. Mm -hmm. The people who, who who, who found nothing in themselves to trust.
1: Right.
0: Those of us who are good if I can put that in quotes, mm-hmm. we find a lot in ourselves to trust. Mm-hmm. We're pretty self-righteous. Right. And that's our downfall. Right. So I, I think I think that's why um, those nearest to Christ will be those who are, have the most forgiven. Right. It's because they have reali- realized the most how sinful they are and have accepted the love of God the most fully. It's, it's sort of like the glass. Mm-hmm. You feel you can only feel so far with water if it has something else in it. Mm-hmm. But if it's empty of itself, you can feel it full. fill it full, All right? Hmm.
1: Well, then the paradigm shift, though, is unless you won't be holy until you go to heaven. But if you read the passages and you're becoming holy in our process here that goes against the sort of concept of that control issue. It's got to decide who's doing the holiness.
0: I think it isn't us. I think that's the whole thing that we are very reluctant. And, and what has helped me most to understand this and, and appreciate it is to think of it in terms of love. Holiness is love, right? And to the extent that we have accepted the love of God, we Christ can can heal the damage done. Mm-hmm. To the extent that we, uh, and, and I sound like it's it's us doing it. It's not. It's uh, to the extent that we respond to the love of God. Maybe let's say, because I believe that it is him, he, he and His love that saves us. It's not we ourselves. Mm-hmm. So what He does is pour out His love on us in the gift of His Son. And in that process, if we allow His love to f- draw us, it will draw us to Him and fill us with it. And we become more and more like Him. But it's all of Him. It's, it's not we ourselves that are doing anything. We love because He first loved us.
1: I think part of what complicates it. Is is so that we believe we're free agents and we make a choice, and that's the process. It's that's a, the process of being drawn. It's done. not one side or another. It's an interactive process.
0: It is an interactive process, but uh, we have
1: to make a choice. But to,
0: the power uh, of it, the empowerment—oh, that comes—is com- yeah. completely yeah. from yeah. God. Right. That, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Uh, it's not that we become little blobs and we just we're saved right. and <laughs> we don't have any mind about it yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not it's not that way at all right so well we, we got a lot out of this little uh passage or at least yeah. it, it springboarded a lot in the uh, introduction uh, to it. um for it is written i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the, w- and the discernment of the discerning i will thwart who is wise where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not, not God made foolish the wisdom foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks desire wisdom but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. So, um, it's a stumbling block to Jews. They don't like the idea that the Christ they crucified needed to die. And I I want to make clear that their crucifying Christ is not in any way sanctioned because Jesus needed to die. Mm. ultimately he didn't die from crucifixion anyway he died before crucifixion
1: in the sense that he is giving up his life willingly
0: in the sense that he bore our sins and sin crushed out his life okay. that's how i see it right so when he's
1: praying in gethsemane
0: he when he's praying in gethsemane he nearly dies the right. angel has to come and strengthen him before right. he for right. him to go to the cross right. So, it's a stumbling block to Jews and to the Gentiles. Their mystery religions had no concept of that kind of dying. Mm -hmm. They had dying and rising saviors in the mystery religions. But that had a different, completely different worldview attached to it.
1: Well, in the sanctuary, were they praying forgiveness of the sin... And then slaughtering the animals, or did they slaughter the animals? Say now your sins are forgiven and taken, and then they put on the goat into the wilderness. And
0: well, you know you're you're conflating two things: you're conflating the, say, the daily sacrifices and your and the sin offerings and, right. and burnt offerings oh, right. with uh, the Day of Atonement. Mm. So, what they were doing in Jesus' day, they were making all those sacrifices to appease God. Oh, it was an to, appeasement. To, I think it was appeasement, ah. um, and it was kind of buying his favor. It was, it was, it was something they did to get his forgiveness, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That's how they saw it. Uh, but that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, that He was laying His life down in Christ, be, that our sins were crushing out His life, that we were responsible for His death. Mm. This is not payment now. This is not appeasement. This is this is an enactment of our true condition, and this is what it leads us to do. And he's demonstrating that, and demonstrating that sin leads to death.
1: Ah, so that's why it's so important for Satan to have, I think, I think as near as I remember, and then studying and and traveling, all religions do appeasement to God.
0: Well, all false religions believe in uh, salvation by works. All false religions do that.
1: And they want to appease God. They have all kinds of ceremonies to keep appeasing Him and appeasing Him.
0: That seems to be the way it works. The Greeks were into Sophia wisdom, and they believed kind of in salvation by... Their own ability to think through things and be mm-hmm. wise. So the cross is just, what, what are you talking mm-hmm. about? They would not comprehend the topic. and it
1: would be foolishness. It would be just. And yeah, they had real trouble with him, with <laughs> Paul. Yes. They could accept as God, but they couldn't accept the, the crucifixion and salvation of that. Mm-hmm. Thing. Hmm. When we go to Bali. Uh, and I've talked to local Balinese Uh, you know they have a lot of ceremonies Uh, but in India they have many gods but in Bali apparently they have two main gods two brothers, a good brother and a bad brother and they're appeasing both brothers to bring (laughs) so you don't get evil but get more good and they have all kind of sacrifices and flowers every day and you know motorcycles and vehicles there are certain days that they're uh, uh they put flowers and little offerings to the gods and stuff on your vehicles, and they, everything you think of it appeasing
0: mm-hmm. the good and the bad at least they don 't do it the ties do you? yeah right pierce themselves oh yeah right, right
1: yeah i haven 't seen them do that
0: no, the idea of someone taking our sins and dying for us just doesn 't fit either. Greeks or Jews mm. why don't we have closing prayer and we can. Father we thank you so much for the death of Jesus for his revelation to us of the character of sin and the character of God we thank you that his death can make sense that it does make sense and yet only in this paradigm of love does it merely make sense I pray that your love may fill our hearts and we may experience it in every way so that we may more fully comprehend it and your death for us. In Jesus' name, amen.